109th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing, screenwriting, to music critiquing, to self-help, to song lyrics, to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode stars Levi Weaver, the Texas Rangers beat writer for The Athletic. And it also stars Levi Weaver, the singer-songwriter who toured the world for a good decade sharing his music. And interestingly and weirdly and awesomely, the singer-songwriter Levi Weaver became a sports writer Levi Weaver, which just blows my mind and makes for a fantastic conversation of one man who has mastered two different genres of writing. So kick back, grab a sausage, and listen to two writers singing yang. All right, Levi, first of all, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I very much uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, of course. I'm happy to do it. Here's a here's a, uh, here's a a true story and a confession. I'm reading your stuff on The Athletic, and I'm like, wow, this guy is a really interesting writer. So I start doing my research on you, but I can't find anything on you. Because all I find when I when I Google Levi Weaver are, the, are all these things about this singer named Levi Weaver. But I can't find anything about this. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm not lying. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, all I can find is this stuff about the singer, Levi Weaver. And yeah. I find like your articles and a couple of things. And then <laughs> I don't even know how it hits me. I'm like, oh, wait, this is the same guy. And this guy has the weirdest, yes. the weirdest background for someone who's <laughs> covering the Texas Rangers. I've ever, so I, I, I mean, I am, I, I went to my wife last night. I swear to God. And I'm like, it's the same guy. It's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you had told her, like, I can't find anything about this guy because yeah. the singer, like, great. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, sorry about that. Then I went deep down the rabbit hole, and now I have some of your songs on my uh, on my phone. So there you go. You know, oh, dear. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, wait, so I want to start with something before I get into your deep into your background and all this stuff. Sure. Because um, I've always wondered this. I've had songwriters on this podcast before. I've had sports writers on this uh, podcast before. Does being a songwriter at all in any way, shape or form have any parallels to being a person covering a major league baseball team? Are there, are there any tools that cross over or is it just, is it like Beethoven all of a sudden deciding to be, become, you know, Eddie Van Halen? Um, for me, and I, I can't speak for anybody else, um, for any of the other multitude of songwriters who have crossed over to become sports journalists. Uh, I, I can't, I can't speak for any of them, but for me, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think when I was writing songs, lyrics were always kind of my strength. I was kind of a hack musician, to be quite honest. Um, what do you mean by like, that? I didn't start playing. I mean, I didn't start playing guitar until I was 19. I, I took piano lessons when I was a kid and did like for like, for like two years. Um, I loved playing drums when I was a teenager because it was a typical male that just needed to get my like out. Right. Um, but I didn't start playing guitar until I was 19 and didn't really start writing songs until then. And a lot of that started, wow, we are, we are kind of delving into it. A lot of that started from me wanting to interact with the crowd. And when I was playing drums, I was having to like lean in and like scream into a snare drum mic. And that was like, it's like, shut up drummer. We don't want to hear from you. Um, and so for me to succeed at songwriting, I felt like my writing, which is something I'd kind of always liked to do in, in high school. I really enjoyed the creative writing prompts that we would do. And I feel like it had to be more creative and I had to be able to turn a phrase 
a little bit better than the next guy. And so when I came to sports journalism, I knew that I didn't have the journalism background. I knew that I didn't have the contacts in or out of the organization. Like I'm not just going to call up a double A coach my first day on the job and have them trust me uh, that I'm not going to burn them. And so I, I had to be more lyrical in my writing. And so rather than say like, Joey Gallo hit the ball 450 feet. What a monster home run. I would say something like, you know, half man, half horse. Joey Gallo hit a ball that kissed the sky and God sent it back to earth as a steaming pile of, uh, you know, rubble. Like just putting in the extra effort to try and make it more engaging because I knew that was, that was what I could do. Um, and I've tried not to lose that as I, as I have attempted to sharpen my like reporting skills and, and, all of the other things that go into being a sports writer. Like I don't ever want to lose that because I feel like that's what, that's what makes me, me, if that makes any sense. Sure. Sure. I was reading your, uh, I was reading, I was going through your, uh, your website last night and you wrote a piece when you sort of gave up music where you stopped and, and mm-hmm. you, you wrote, um, I haven't played a show since August. And even that was two songs at a wedding. I've written a total yeah. of two songs since we got to Dallas. I told my wife last week, I feel no more capable of writing a song than I do engineering a bridge. It's like a foreign concept to me. I don't know what happened, which I find really interesting because again, you had this very long, successful career writing songs. How does one stop being able to write songs? Uh, I wish I could remember the author that said this. And so I feel, I feel bad for stealing this thought, but just, it was uh, me. It's not an, it was me. It's, not, it's uh, this, this guy, Perlman that I talked to, um, but they, they described the, uh, it was, it was an author. She, I remember as a, she, she wrote books. Um, and she talked about the idea of you don't force the story onto the page. You sit there and just sort of wait for the spirit to pass through you. And then, you know, it's, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. But you have to be there because when it happens, when the ghost comes, then you get it all out as fast as you can for as long as the ghost decides to stay. And then the ghost leaves and you've got nothing again. And I mean, I remember I probably read that seven or eight years ago and I, it was so, it resonated so much with me that I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what writing a song is like. Um, I had friends, I lived in Nashville for seven years and I had friends that were country music writers and that writing is completely different from what I did because that was like a hit machine, right? Like you've got your verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. You have to have the chorus has to have the hook and the hook has to fit on a bumper sticker. And it was, I hated it. I I hated everything about it, but he described it to me as like, you are sitting around waiting for lightning to strike. And my job is to go in and like rub sparks together and try to make it strike. And he was exactly right. Um, so as someone who never really like learned how to cultivate that lightning, like, yeah, I could put myself in the right. I knew that I wrote better at night. I could stay up at night and play guitar, or I knew that I wrote better, you know, after maybe a couple of cups of coffee or like whatever it was, the settings. I could put myself in the settings, but then I was just sitting there waiting for the ghost, so to speak. And at some point the ghost was like, man, I got better places to be and nice knowing you. We had a good run. Uh, see you later. And it just never came back. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could describe it better than that, but that's, that's all I've got. So like, would you be sitting down in front of your computer with a pad and, 
and pen and just writing, you know, I love you. You remind me of the rose shit. That's no good. You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, was it just crap coming out of your mouth or nothing was coming out? Um, no, it was bad. It was really bad. <laughs> I was, I, I think looking back on it now, so this has been, you know, four years ago and I, I don't know, either I have perspective or I've grown up a little bit and I think I have perspective that is just me being separated from it and I'm speculating on my own history here. But I think a lot of what I wrote about was, was the wrestling, um, whether that be with myself or with relationships or, you know, my dad was a rodeo cowboy and also a pastor. And so coming out of, I swear I would never come back to Texas. Um, the, the wrestling with faith and, you know, for a time, the loss of faith or the rebuilding of it, it looks completely different than it did when I was a kid. Songwriting was kind of my therapy, I guess, so to speak. It was cathartic for me to, to sit and like, I couldn't make sense of my thoughts. And so I would sit and write it. And all of a sudden I would look and realize like, Oh, this is a song. Um, and so as that wrestling, it's not that I don't wrestle with those thoughts anymore or those, I think I probably always will. Um, but I think when it came, there was a while that I became angry and my angry writing was not good. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I'm not angry anymore. Maybe if I sat down with a guitar, it would come back, but just for whatever reason, that was like, it, it poisoned the well a little bit probably. And so it was just bad. It sounded like crappy, like protest songs from like middle-aged dudes, no offense to middle-aged dudes, which I would that I am now. So it was accurate. Right. But I remember being like, you know, 25 years old and, and thinking that I knew everything and listening to guys in their forties, write these songs about the government. I don't trust them. And they're trying to, kill us all peace, love and happiness. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I get it. That's great. But these songs are so boring. And then I started writing those songs and I was bored by myself. And so, yeah, it was just bad. And I, I didn't want to write any more bad songs. It's really interesting. I, um, I grew up and still, I'm a big hip hop fan mm -hmm. and I grew up a huge public enemy fan. Oh and yeah. And those protest songs are amazing. Sure. But every now and then, Public Enemy will release new music, and Chuck D will release something new. And I love Chuck D. Um, I love everything about the guy. But it's just, there's something about being a 48, 50, whatever, old, however old he is now, your old guy, yeah. saying you're mad at the government. And for some reason, I don't know what it is, but you're, they just don't resonate the same way. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Are songs supposed to be written by the young? I, I mean, I, I kind of think so. And I have friends that disagree with me on this. Um, but like, look at, look at the greatest songwriter of all time by a lot of accounts, Bob Dylan. Like his new music sucks. And I love Bob Dylan, but his new music has been terrible for years. So if the best songwriter in the world got old, like who am I to think that I'm not going to suffer the same fate as Bob Dylan? And I'm not saying that you can't be good well into your forties and fifties, especially if you're doing like singer songwriter, like folk stuff. I think Glenn Hansard is amazing. I don't, I don't know how old Glenn Hansard is. I know he's older than me. Um, he still makes great music. I think Damien Rice still makes good music. Um, there are, there are guys that can do it, but it's, and maybe it's, maybe it's ages to say this, like maybe it's not fair, but at some point, I kind of start thinking maybe subconsciously like, dude, 
how do you not have it together by this point? Like figure it, figure out your life. Stop being, <laughs> stop being so sad. Like go, you've lived a lot of years. Like you should have this figured out by now. Um, right. So maybe right. I, so funny. I think there's something to it. And then maybe some of it is just that we're not, maybe we're programmed to be unfair to songwriters as they age. Right. Or maybe it's just, you drive a minivan, man. Right. What do you, you come on? What do you, <laughs> well, and, and having kids, I 100% was a factor too. Like you just don't have time to wallow in your own sadness anymore. Like, Hey, I gotta get the kids to camp. Before we continue with two riders singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and we're going to play rapid fire. You ready? I guess so. Favorite baseball player. John Rocker. Favorite journalist. Skip Bayless. The winner of the 2020 election will be Donald Trump, our Lord and savior. Wait, why are you doing this to me? Because your podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of throwback sports merchandise. And even though I visit 503-sports.com all the time, you still haven't gotten me the Miami Manatee shirt I wanted. I, I bought it for your brother. Where can I find myself a good John Feinstein book? So how does this happen? Like, like you're by, it's kind of funny because you have a Twitter account for you as a musician in person. Then you have a Twitter account for you as a baseball writer. Um, you know, it says you basically started uh, covering baseball for WFAA, which I had to look up, which is the ABC affiliate. Yeah. Um, like what the hell one day you're like, I just want to be a baseball writer and I want to cover the Texas Rangers because they were my boyhood <laughs> team. Um, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so it started, the, the seeds were planted in 2013. Um, I had finished a record and I was not yet on tour. And so actually probably the seeds were further back than that. Like when the Rangers were in the world series in 2010 and 2011, like I was excited about it. Cause that was the team I grew up watching and, everybody on my music Twitter account was like, okay, we get it. You like baseball, but like, that's not why we're like, we're gonna, I'm going to unfollow you if you don't stop tweeting about baseball. <laughs> and right. I was like, all right, fine. I, so I started a second account. Like, if you want to hear me talk about baseball, just come over to this account. I'll keep all of it over there. So like my three, two EFAS account started as my like secondary account for like things that people in my music account didn't want to hear about. And then I kind of found a community of people there of, you know, other Rangers fans and other baseball fans and other sports people that like I, that I started following is a relatively small number of people. But one of those guys that I found was or Moyle, which is um, his first name is or or, which is an interesting name. So he said, Hey, we're looking to hire some bloggers for the remainder of this 2013 season as the Rangers head into the playoffs. Like if you're interested, hit me up. And I'm like, I kind of got some spare time. That seems fun. Sure. Let's, let's write a baseball article once in a while. Um, long story short, like the Rangers petered out at the end of that season and I got tied up in paperwork. And so I never did, uh, write anything for them that year. The next year he asked if I wanted to do the blogging thing again. And I went, man, I'm about to move into an RV. What I don't want to do is like take the gig, be terrible at it and then get fired and never do it again. So let's table this and we'll see if this RV thing works out. So 2015, we end up back in Texas, which I swore I would never do, but my wife got offered a job. I was in Europe finishing a tour and my wife got offered a job in Dallas. And it was, you know, after living in an RV for a year and sort of scraping by on a musician's income to have a guaranteed salary was attractive enough that we ended up back in Dallas. And right. I mean, frankly, I was not happy. Like I was really upset that we were moving back to Texas because my Texas experience had been 
this tiny little podunk town where I graduated with 52 people. And it was like, I, I really felt like I spent a decade trying to escape that vortex of small town, Texas. I mean, I lived in England for a couple of years. I traveled for a couple of years. I lived in Nashville for a second. I mean, it's, you know, however far away I could get, that's where I was going to go. So coming back to, to Texas felt like a failure to me. I felt like all of my running had been for naught, and here I am sucked back into this vortex. Um, so 2015 was a weird year for me, man. I grew my hair all the way up, like past my shoulders. Uh, I planted a garden. I did a lot of, uh, like, day drinking and just doing like <laughs> trying to start writing songs again. Like, I, right. Hey, the, the tour's over. I think I'm still a musician. So let's start writing these songs. And then of course they come out like, I mean, maybe they were angry because of politics. Maybe they were angry because I'm back in Texas. I'm sure it's all connected. Um, and so just kind of to keep myself occupied and to keep myself doing something, I, I hit up Oregon and like, Hey man, I, I got some free time. Like do you still want, me to write about baseball. And he goes, yeah, bring it. And so I was writing one or two blog entries a week about the Rangers, just, you know, I'm getting paid like 20 bucks a pop. Like it's not an income really, but it's something to do. And, um, so I did that for all of 2015 and the girl that had the full-time gig moved to Guam. And by this time it's October, November. I realized like, I haven't, this, this music thing is, I think we're done. I'm not bitter about it being done. We parted on amicable terms, but we're just not speaking anymore. And so he's looking to fill this position. And I just go, Hey man, I think I might want to do that. And so we went out to dinner and it was funny. He, he goes, um, so the baseball season is a really long grind. I'm like, yeah, I just did 200 shows in a year and I drove 60,000 miles <laughs> I'm good. Right. And he goes, okay, next concern. Like the sports media industry is really in turmoil right now. There's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of, it's kind of the wild West right now. We don't really know what's happening. And I was trying not to be rude, but I couldn't, I laughed. I'm like, dude, you've heard of Napster, right? Like I just came from an industry that has gone through <laughs> the biggest collapse that anyone has. Like I've gone through the artist version of this already. I, I think I can surf whatever storm is coming. And so he went to bat for me. He convinced his bosses to hire me. Uh, he convinced the Rangers to actually give me a credential. And here I go. I, I go from being this touring singer songwriter to someone who is, I mean, I'm basically making, uh, an intern's wage, but I am a full-time baseball writer now. And so I went to all, I went to spring training. I went to all 81 home games, got to go to the playoff game. It was like the only travel that I got to do that year. And, um, and then, yeah, here we go. So I did that for a couple of years. Couldn't convince WFA to give me a full-time salary. And so I quit. I started my own website called The Upset. Um, it was a subscription site. We, we thought we had a while before The Athletic came to Dallas. Uh, it, but it was similar in, in structure to what The Athletic was doing. And then we found out that they were coming to Dallas and expanding. And so kind of had a decision to make like either I'm in this all the way and we get investors and we become their primary competitor or uh, we take their offer to join their site. And ultimately it was a conversation with my brother. He was like, what do you want to do? I'm like, yeah, dude, that is the question I literally just asked you. And he was like, no, I mean, do you want to head up a company? Do you want to be in charge of a media company and, and deal with all of that? Or do you just want to be a baseball writer? And I went, Oh, well that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, it's really simple. I just want to be a baseball writer. He's like, okay, then go like take the money and like take the salary and 
that's something a lot of people don't get. Go take it and be happy. And uh, so, yeah, here I am. Are you happy? Oh man, that's such a complicated question. Um, as, as far like professionally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very professionally satisfied. Um, happy is a movie t- moving target. I, I think, I think happy is a goal that people mistakenly set. I think satisfied really is, content is the word I, I, that I aim for. I aim to be content. There's too much going on in the world right now. You've got, I mean, you want to look at politics. If you want to look at uh, global politics, you want to look at famine, you want to look at global warming, you want to, or, or sorry, climate change. Look at all of these various things that are so broken. Um, I, I don't, I think happy is naive, but can I be content? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. I struggle with the exact, I mean, today I go on Twitter and the first thing I see is more rolling back of coal regulations by the Trump administration. And of course that freaking puts dark clouds over my day. And I've yet to learn, I've yet to learn how to not let that happen. And I really struggle with that. That's my biggest. Oh, me too. And then, and then the more that I engage and listen to voices in, in the black community and in the LGBTQ community and in other minority communities, it, it almost takes away my defense mechanism for that. So like on one hand, I don't want to let every day be, have this dark cloud over it and let this affect my day and like wreck my day of something that I can't change today. And so part of me wants to go like, all right, I just have to ignore this today. Like, let me just lean into baseball and focus on that. And then to listen to voices in those other communities go, that's kind of a privilege to be able to do that, man, because you know that you can go to work and you're not going to get pulled over just for the color of your skin. And you know that you can keep your job. Nobody's going to be like, Oh, he has a wife. Oh, um, nobody's going to question me about like, Oh, you have kids. Like, how are you going to juggle parenting and your job? Like nobody asks men that. And so I almost like, like I'm trying to find a balance of how do I not look away? How do I stay engaged? How do I recognize my privilege there and use my voice to make changes where I can without letting things that I can't control just completely waylay me because I will 100% and this has happened to me in the past. Like I will 100% delve into despair. Like I will despair for weeks on end and look up and realize like I haven't done anything. Um, and that doesn't describe Twitter. You just describe Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and delving into despair for two weeks doesn't change anything, you know, like, I've had to, I, I've really, Jeff, I've been leaning into a concept lately and I don't know if a podcast is really the right place to do this, but let's go with it. Let's, let's flesh it out. And Please. if I have a really bad idea, then I'll be canceled. And Hey, at least I'll know it was a bad idea, yeah. but I've been, I've been leaning into the idea of, um, hope as rebellion. So like the idea of believing that things can be good as just a rebellion against the recognition that I'm not going to be able to fix it. So coal regulations are being rolled back and you've got a round of deportations happening. You've got kids held in cages at at the border. And like, I can't do anything to, to, I can't go in and single-handedly change that. But if I can go bring my leftovers out of, instead of like 
sending my leftovers out, if I can take my leftovers and find a homeless person to give them to, that's not going to change everything. But that's my little act of like kindness as an act of rebellion to go like the more light and the more goodness that I can put into this world, then is it going to change everything? No, probably not. Will it change something for this person for right now? Maybe. And at very least, I'm going to feel like I have sort of thumbed my nose at the darkness by doing something good. And I know that's not the right motivation. Like I know that the motivation for doing good things should be uh, out of a pure heart and should be out of like a genuine desire to want to see good. But I feel like that sort of innocent desire to see good and to, to try to make things better isn't working. And so for me, sometimes it does come out of a, 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 uh, probably misguided, but a sense of rebellion to go like, I'm going to do this just to spite all the bad things that are happening. There's so many la- like, uh, my wife a month and a week ago, she gave a kidney to a stranger. Like she was in a Starbucks. Wow. It's a true story. She was in a Starbucks. She saw someone who needed a kidney. She thought to herself, you have to be really desperate for a kidney. If you're hanging flyers in a Starbucks, uh, she checked mm-hmm. her blood match and she gave a kidney and, and it's a huge ordeal. And, we were talking afterwards because you feel good about helping someone, right? You feel good about mm-hmm. helping someone. You feel good about doing a good deed. Just like you give a homeless guy your sandwich and there's a, there's a part of you that feels good about doing it. And then you question whether you're being selfish because you feel good about doing something. And yeah, is that, am I doing it because I'm, because it's the right thing to do or am I doing it because of these feelings of self reward and, and maybe it's okay what, to like, Yeah. For me, this whole new thing has definitely taken away that question for me because I don't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel angry. Like I feel angry that it's necessary. Um, when I see things like, like somebody, Oh, this girl, you know, people, this this community came together and a GoFundMe and they raised $25,000 to save this girl's life and provide surgery. I'm like, right. Great. That shouldn't be necessary. Like what, why, what dystopian future do we live in that we've taken all of this technology and all of this knowledge and all of the things that we know how to do. And this is what we've ended up with. And so like, like I'm going to tell the story, not to brag on myself because I know that my motivation was wrong, but just because I feel like it's a good example of what I'm talking about. I was in Houston and I had some leftover barbecue and and there's a huge around the ballpark in Houston. There's like a very large homeless population Mm -hmm. And so I had, you know, some leftovers and I walk out and I'm like, I got to find somebody to give these to. I'm not going to waste this. And so I, I handed it to this. There was like a group of five or six guys nearby. But before I got to them, I found this one guy that was, there. I gave it to him. And these other people came over as I was walking away and we're like, you know, what makes you so special? Why do you get to keep that? And he's yelling at them. It's like, you, you know, it, it turned into a fight. And I was so angry. I'm like, I tried to do something good. And here we go. The, the the darkness has flipped me off in return. And I got so mad that I like went back to the barbecue place and I bought a, a like, I'm like, can I afford to do this? Right. Yeah. I have a, I have a good job. Like I can, this is not like, I can just not do all of the unnecessary stuff that I do for like two weeks. Let me just, I can afford this. I can afford to give these people a meal. So I went back and I bought like a meal for five or six people. And I like marched myself back up there. I'm like, guys, all we have in this world is each other. Like there are people whose entire goal is to eliminate you, 
to eliminate me. They don't care about us. Like, stop fighting with each other. Here's some food. Please be kind to each other. Like, take this food, eat it together, get to know each other. This forge a community and be there for each other. Like, stop fighting. Right. And I like it. I did that out of anger, and I did that out of like frustration and. And it wasn't the sort of like, I'm not congratulating myself for like, Oh, look at this kind deed that I did. It's, it's more, I don't know. Maybe this is a plea for help. Like I wish that I could have good motivation for good things that I do, but I feel like they're all based now out of this. Just, it feels like a fight and I can get angry and fight and I can rail against, you know, the president or the division, or I can rail against willful ignorance or I mean I can find people on my own side to rail against too or I can just go put as much good into the world as I can and be like there that's all I can do I know that I'm doing all I can do so if that's not enough then whatever man like I I tried yeah so it's it's kind of uh it's it's an act of rebellion it's kind of an act of desperation and hopefully some good comes out of it but if it doesn't, it's still better than me, like picking a fight with a stranger on Facebook. So, yeah, I feel like we're really all just trying to find tricks to get through this all, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're all just trying to find ways and tricks and things we can do and things that make us feel better and something to make us feel like, okay, this could be okay. Or, okay, there's something about humanity, blah, blah, blah. And it's just really hard. Right. And I I love to find stories where there is good in humanity. And honestly, like this is something that I have to keep my focus on is that in the day to day and people that I run into, like, yeah, there are some people that are jerks. Like there's always going to be people that are jerks, but by and large, the number of people that I interact with every day, and I don't mean on Twitter, I mean, in real life are genuinely trying their best. Sure. Like they're, they're trying to get through just like you and I, and maybe we have different ideas of what that looks like. Um, sorry, you could hear my microwave. I'm warming up coffee. That's maybe you good. could, um, <clears throat> we have different ideas maybe of what that looks like, or we might disagree on the solutions, but really our, our heart is hopefully in the right place. Um, you know, I've listened to different voices than my parents' generation. I've listened to different voices, probably even than you, like we've listened to different voices telling us what the solution is, but everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to provide for their family. Everybody wants to um, believe that they're a good person. And so it is really difficult to, to remember that when you're interacting with people primarily online. And that's why it's important, I think, to get out and interact with people because it does restore your faith in humanity. Even if you meet people that you disagree with, face-to-face, -face, people are a lot more polite about their disagreements usually, unless they're just furious in traffic or whatever. But Right. When I sit down and have conversations with people that I disagree with, I find that those conversations go much better than being online. On a lighter topic, you wrote mm -hmm. a story. The, the reason I even sort of reached out to you, because I'm okay. not a Texas Ranger fan. I don't read The Athletic that often. I'm a subscriber. I don't read it that often. Um, I covered baseball long ago, uh, but I, I haven't really followed it closely. And then this story pops up from uh, June 11th. Phillips Valdez's outing may be forgotten, but his story shouldn't be. Mm. And I feel like this is something I really love about The Athletic. Because you wrote the piece on one, two, three, four, five, five pieces of paper. 
because your mm-hmm. power was out. You li- it's yeah. literally your notepad is the article and the lead is the power is out of my house and has been since the storms on Sunday afternoon. My laptop is dead and the power company says they aren't sure when things will be back to normal. But the story I'm about to tell you has waited long enough. So, hey, candlelight and with pen and paper by candlelight and with pen and paper, I'm going to tell you the story of Phillips Valdez. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you write this story about this very sort of forgettable here today, gone tomorrow pitcher for the Texas Rangers, Phillips Valdez, uh, whose brother died. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you wrote it on paper and it ran in the athletic in your notepad. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Explain, please. <laughs> Um, I knew that I wanted to tell his story. Uh, when I, when we talked to him, like I'm a sucker for two things above anything else in baseball. I am a sucker for guys who, um, have gone through a really extended slump and then figure it out and break out of it. And then I am a sucker even more so like the, the Austin Bibbins, Dirks, the Brandon Mans of the world. These are names that are probably not going to mean anything to you. The guys that toil in the minor leagues for like a decade. And they just, do you remember the movie from, I don't know, gosh, a decade ago, I think it was called The Rookie, where this guy was a high school teacher and his students convinced him to come, come back on. and end up pitching in the of big course, Jim Morris. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, those stories, 100% my jam. Like, anytime somebody comes up after that long in the minor leagues, I love to tell that story. Um, just because, like, what what is wrong with you that you stuck with it for that long. Like what is going on with you that you love baseball that much that you would play in the minor leagues for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for Phillips, like he's this tall, skinny kid. He's built about the same as I am, obviously more muscular than me, but like he's, I think six two one sixty, So he's a beanpole. Mm-hmm. You could tell that he was so happy to be there. Like he just couldn't stop smiling. But then over the course of, um, the post game interview, his, the manager, Chris Woodward mentioned something about, um, you know, during, he looked better now than he had in spring training. And of course, you know, he had some family stuff going in spring training, but, but, and just sort of that, a throwaway line almost. Right. And my ears perked up. I'm like, well, what was that all about? So I, none of the other reporters asked him and I just waited for them all to clear out. And I, I went, Hey, you know, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but like your manager mentioned something about family thing, like what was going on. And he said that his, his brother had passed away. And, um, and my, my brother had also, and my brother passed away when I was 17, he was 13. Uh, we were in a car accident on the, on the drive home from school. And so that's, um, you know, I, I sort of, there's some empathy there, I think. And, and so, yeah, it was just this really heart rendering story of this guy who not only has he gone through the minor leagues for 10 years, but then this year his brother passes away. And then, and then now here he finally makes his big league debut and, and, What's more, like he knows he's the 26th man for a doubleheader. He knows he's going back down to the minor leagues at the end of this. Like this is, unless he comes back up in September, like this is a one day thing. He worked 10 years for this one day. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's the added emotional weight of that. So, so yeah, I wanted to write the story. Um, I kind of knew the direction that I wanted to take with it. But as soon as I get home, like our power's out. If we have a huge storm, there are trees down everywhere in our neighborhood and. I'm like, all right, when the power comes back on, you know, I'll write this story and, and submit it. And it just keeps not coming back on. And so I called our editor. I just, it was sort of a just light bulb idea. I'm like, Hey, what if I hand wrote a story? Like they've, they're constantly telling us you should write outside the box. And sometimes with me, they're like, you maybe need to climb back in the box a little. You're too far outside the box. Go ahead, bring it in, buddy. Um, I'm like, if this is, 
I, I think the emotional gravity of the story probably lends itself to being a hand. I couldn't do a handwritten story about like, you know, about injury update or like a, uh, some minor transaction. Like it, it has to have some emotional weight to it. If it's going to be handwritten, but I feel like the story would work. And so I run it by my editor and to his credit, and this is the same guy or from uh, that used to work at WFA. He came over to the athletic with us and he's our managing editor now. Like, he went to bat for me and he's like, we have to run it just as is. I trust Levi. I think this is really going to work. And, um, and so they ran it and I didn't expect it to have the response that it did, but I just think it was so different from what you would normally read on the, you know, MLB.com or whatever that the novelty of it probably caught people's attention. When you, when you go up to him and ask, cause you asked more than once, you asked twice sort of for details or, or mm-hmm. get the information about his brother's passing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like there's a way to approach someone? Uh, and get what you're looking for when it comes to something like that? Do you have to have an extra layer of empathy or proje- offer something body language-wise? That was a great question. And it was complicated further by the fact that like everybody else had left, including the interpreter, and he mostly only spoke Spanish, and I mostly only spoke English. So um, even in English, there's sort of, for me, I will start with an apology of like, hey, if you don't, if you're not comfortable with this, like, let me know. I want to be really respectful of your feelings um, and your, your privacy. So if there's something you don't want to talk about, like I'll scrap it. And I always want to give players that like, yes, my curiosity is huge and I want to know, but they're human beings. And if they don't want to talk about their personal life, like that's their prerogative. So um, that's how I would usually start it with him. I had to just sort of fumble through in as I think probably the exact interpretation of what I said was, um, I'm sorry for more questions, but I, I want to get details. Correct. was basically the, the gist of what I said. Um, yeah. So like a lot of body language, which I don't even body language doesn't always translate from culture to culture either. So right. I, I wasn't sort of aware that I was doing body language, but now that you mentioned it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I was doing a lot of like sort of where you do the thing with your hands in circles and you kind of almost do a little tiny bow, like, Oh, sorry. Yeah. It'd be an inconvenience here. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm maybe that's something they teach you in journalism school. Maybe they teach you how to be more, um, like how to be a journalist in those situations. I, I, but I don't know that. So I just have yeah. to approach it as I would a human, like I, how to be a human being in those situations. I don't know. You're uh you're such a, you're, I was going to say weird, and and I say it as a total compliment. You're like a weird writer. You are. I was reading your mm-hmm. stuff last night. It's funny that you use Ephus in your uh, in your Twitter handle because you are like an Ephus, um, in the best possible way. You're like, <laughs> you're like kind of like I I came up at Sports Illustrated back in the '90s, and they would have okay. taken a lot of your leads and destroyed them. They would have oh, slashed yeah. them and condensed them. And I freaking love how you write because it's so. You're very much of a like. You know, I was standing at this bar and this bye, 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 bye. Like, mm. it's really conversational. And you have to paint a picture, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but it's like beautifully lazy. Like, it's like lazy day, casual, cool, engrossing. And I really, that's why I started with songwriting because I wonder, it's almost like you are very unconventional. Your writing is really unconventional journalistically. And I just sort of wonder if that's the songwriter in you to a certain degree. Or if you're just making this shit up as you go along, I have no idea. It's probably both. Um, yeah. you know, it's knowing that I don't have that journalism background. And this is my fourth year covering the team. So I'm, 
I mean, I'm in the middle of a story right now that is more straightforward reporting. Um, I'm learning how to do that. And thank God I'm at the athletic now because I can like shoot Ken Rosenthal a text and be like, Hey man, I don't know how to handle this situation. Can you help me? And Ken's amazing. And he'll just like call you up and be like, all right, what do you got? Like, let me talk you through this. And he's very supportive. Like, this is your story. You write it how you want. We all, you know, everybody trusts you. You do great. Here's how I would do it. But, you know, take that or leave it. And for Ken Rosenthal, I mean, there's probably no bigger giant in this industry right now of baseball writing than Ken to just go, "Eh, here's how I do it. But I trust you. Like, that's wild. And and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's that aspect of it. But then part of it is that I just haven't haven't really done it and and established enough of a reading being i was way weirder when i was at wfaa like there was one time i described chuck morgan the rangers play-by-play announcer as like smoking a long french cigarette and speaking in a french accent and turning into a ghost and floating over the baseball field and saying like life is pain and was playing on the big screen and like like i would i just get super super weird with it back then i feel like i have had to rein it in just a little bit going to the athletic Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's probably just because I know that I can't be a better Evan Grant than Evan Grant. Um, I can't be a better TR Sullivan than TR Sullivan. I just have to like really lean into being me and I know it's niche. I know it's not, I mean, that was the case with my music too. Like I had a label once that I really wanted to work with, with my last record. Like I really loved the label. I loved the label head. Uh, I love the other bands on the label. I was like, oh, please just let me sign with this label. And the, the head of the label took it and he, he came back a few days later. He was like, all right, so first thing I want to let you know, the CD is the only thing I've listened to for four days. I love it. It's amazing. And I'm like, yes, we did it. We did it. And he goes, but, and that's the word, right? But yeah, he goes, but, but. like, he goes, I want to talk to you about beer. I'm like, okay. And he goes, there are craft beers that oh, no. he goes, there's like Budweiser and there's Coors Light. And there are these beers that everybody knows, like that's the default beer. And it's easy to market because everybody knows what Budweiser is. Everybody knows what Coors Light is. Like you just go, hey, we got beers. What's the most inoffensive beer we can get? You know what? Everybody will drink a Coors Light. Let's do it. And he goes, and then you've got these craft beers of like these really microbreweries and they've got, here's a, here's a nut brown ale that was finally crafted from you know, Zimbabwe. And, and he said, people will, people that love that beer will drink nothing but that beer and they'll, they'll swear by it and they'll love it. And like, this is so much better. And he goes, and it is better, but to market it is really tricky because how do you market that to somebody who doesn't know what it is? And he goes, I, don't know how to market you. And so I'm not going to sign you because I don't know how to tell people to listen to you. I love what you do, but I just don't know how to market it. And that was kind of something that was throughout the course of my music career was the thing. Everyone's like, is it rock? I mean, sometimes is it just, is it avant-garde? Well, I mean, like probably not as good as some avant-garde artists, but yeah, a little bit. Is it singer songwriter? Sure. But not like, not like you understand singer songwriter to be, it's not country really. How do we market this? And so I think that's kind of been the case with baseball writing too. Like I'm, I, I, I don't know how to be Bud Light when it comes to baseball writing. Right. I, and I wouldn't be good at it if I tried. Um, but I know how to be a weird nut brown ale from Zimbabwe. And so I'm just going <laughs> to lean into that and, and presume that there is a big enough audience 
you know, I mean, Dallas is a huge market, Dallas Fort Worth. If I can just corner enough of that audience that likes what I do, then I don't have to be for everybody. And so far, so good. But that's awesome. I don't know. At some at some point, somebody's going to force me to be Bud Light. I, I assume, and then yeah. I'll maybe quit quit and do something else. I don't know. Yeah. But the day um the day I open one of your articles and it is you know the Texas Rangers split a four game series with the Angels behind two home runs from I'm going to be like right. you got cultured. It's over. Right. Well, Bud Light. and the athletic. Fortunately, the athletic doesn't want that. Like they have told yeah, right. us to stop writing gamers. Um, like right. focus more on the long form. Get outside the box. You know, tell better stories. Think of it more as a magazine and less as a newspaper. Yeah, which is really liberating and really cool. But also, there were times when, like, when the team was bad, there's there's nothing going on with this team. What am I? I, I have to write about the game. Let me just write a gamer, please. And uh, no, we, that's not what we want. Find something better. So, so you will never find that from me, at least not in the athletic. Let me ask you a final question. Um, sure. You have all these sort of crazy, awesome, fantastic life experiences. Um, and you're older. When, when I was unaware that you were the singer and the writer, I actually thought, I'd say until two days ago, I thought I was about to interview a 24-year-old writer who's just really <laughs> good. I swear to God. I was like, oh, this guy, his kid's really good. And I'm like, oh, he's about my age and he's really good. Um, and I kind of wonder, like, I remember my early days of entering the Major League Clubhouse. In fact, I would say all my days of entering the Major League Clubhouse and finding it sort of an intimidating scene. You're on their turf. They oftentimes mm-hmm. don't want to talk to you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're big guys. They're athletic guys. They're blah, blah, blah. Um, and I wonder you having your experiences that you've had in life, performing with big performers, standing in front of big audiences. Um, do you not go through that? Do you enter a clubhouse with complete confidence and poise of a guy who's been around? It's a, it's weird. It's kind of both. And, and I'm, I'm going back to like my first year in the clubhouse. So like in 2016, um, and again, my hair was like still long, like my credential, they they haven't changed my picture. So I, every day I walk in, now, I look at my credential. I'm like, that's still my hair down to my shoulders. What a ridiculous look. Um, you know, here I am wearing these like, because literally it's all that I own. I've got like, you know, tight jeans and boots and like pearl snap shirts and my hair is long and I walk in definitely not looking like a beat writer. Um, I wasn't intimidated by the people or by the like fame of the baseball players or, you know, I mean, I walked in and there's Adrian Beltre who honestly Beltre was the last player really that I, I was such a big fan of him before I started covering the game that I never fully got, that out of my system that I'm, man, I'm a, a really big fan of this guy, but I wasn't intimidated to talk to him because like you said, like I've, I've done a lot. This job doesn't define me. Um, you know, if I like, they're just people, they are, they're just like talking to artists that I talk to. Like they're, yes, they are richer than I am, but I know rich people like this is they're people, not a big deal. That aspect of it, I was not intimidated by, um, what was intimidating for me was knowing that baseball is very much a culture and, you know, there are these unwritten rules about the rookies don't do this or, you, you know, you have to pay your dues and pay respects and all that. And I think a lot of that does creep into the, into the press box as well. So it was a little bit into, I didn't ask very many questions that first year, not because I was intimidated by the players, but because I was intimidated by the other writers and like, I don't want to ask an inappropriate question or I don't want to do something that's going to 
cause a player to walk away. And then all these other guys don't get to get their questions in. Like it was very respectful of the veterans that were doing the job that I was doing. Uh-huh. And so, um, yeah, the, actually TR Sullivan has been such a huge mentor to me since I started the, that was at spring training that first year. And we were, we were talking to Jeff Bannister who was managing the Rangers at the time. And they're talking about Adrian Beltre. And I had a question about Nick Martinez. And so kind of thought I felt a lull there and I jumped in and I asked my question about Nick Martinez. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with TR, like he's been, he's been around forever. I think this is oh, yeah. 31st yeah. year. Yeah. 31st year covering the Rangers. Like he's just this grizzled old veteran. And I see him out of the corner of my eye, just like, ah, I roll his eyes and sigh. And so I just clocked that in my mind. I'm like, okay, I did something wrong there. I'm going to figure it out. And so we're walking back to the clubhouse later and I go, Hey, TR, um, I need your advice on something. He's like, all right. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, come on, man. You know, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. I asked the question about Nick Martinez. You rolled your eyes. Like I, I'm new at this, man. I don't, I didn't never even went to, I didn't even graduate college, like much less journalism school. I'm going to need all the help I can get. I told you, I'm going to ask some stupid questions. This is one of them. What did I do wrong? And he kind of smiled a little bit and he goes, ah, I got to get a better poker face because you catch up. He like waves me up to him. And he's like, all right, he's, he's booking it back to clubhouse because he's got quotes to write. And I catch up and he goes, you changed the subject. I go, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, well, if you notice, we were talking about Adrian Beltre. You jumped in with a question about Nick Martinez. And then we had to circle the question all the way or circle the conversation all the way back to Adrian Beltre. He goes, in the future, wait till we're finished talking about one subject. Then you change the subject. I was like, cool, man. Thank you. Like, that's really helpful advice. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would just like, I still hang out with TR. I, I feel like I've, I don't know that I've learned everything I'm going to learn from him, but I feel like I've got a pretty basic idea of how to handle myself in the press box and in the clubhouse. Um, but just being willing to ask those stupid questions. Like I was, uh, it, it was, it was a lot of like having lived life before. Like I wasn't afraid to ask a stupid question of TR. I knew I needed to, I needed to ask some really basic questions that a 36 year old dude should not have to ask, but it didn't feel like humbling myself. It didn't feel like I was debasing myself by asking a stupid question because I was like, Hey man, I have no idea what I'm doing. So why right. would I, why like, I've been off doing other things with my life? Why would I know this? So right. it's not embarrassing to me to ask this question. And as long as you're cool with me asking questions, then I'm going to keep peppering you with questions probably forever are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah, I'll tell you to shut up when it's time to shut up. <laughs> Great. Um, so yeah, like if I was 22 and this was my first, like, Oh, I finally got a job. I've been wanting this job through college. This is what I went to school to do. This is my big shot. Don't blow it, man. Then that would be way more difficult for me to ask a stupid question because I'd be like, Oh no, they're going to think I'm stupid. Then I'll be like cast out of this press box. And it was kind of like, I don't care, man. If this fails, I'm going to do something else. Right now, I'm a baseball writer, but like I've already been a youth pastor, uh, a missionary, a singer songwriter, a mentor to high school kids in England. I've lived in an RV for a year. Like, I have no idea what my life is going to hold in a year. Right now, I'm a baseball writer. So I'm going to try and be good at that for a while and we'll see where it goes. Um, and that did absolutely afford me some confidence to just like, ask those those types of questions yeah that's amazing that's great also you you are really surrounded down there with some freaking awesome veteran baseball writers oh or, totally. or good guys yeah 
Totally. Right. Yeah. I mean, Evan, Evan Grant is great. Jeff Wilson with the star telegram is great. And then, I mean, even for the first year, one of my best friends was Eric Nadell, who was really into music. And I think it was a good connection for us, but Nadell is fantastic. Uh, Matt Hicks is great. Uh, Dave Raymond in the TV booth is a really nice guy. Less of, he, he feels less like a grizzled veteran, but genuinely engaging and incredibly smart guy. I've got a story coming out about him in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, I mean, that whole press box is full. John Blake is absolutely a grizzled veteran. Oh, yeah. We had our moments where we had to like butt heads. Um, but he's really quick to forgive too. Like he'll blow up and then it's like, then he's over it. So right. once you learn that about John, it's fine. Uh, the first time he yelled at me, I was mortified. <laughs> I go, no. <laughs> life is over but uh you know five minutes later he was talking about something else and like i was like oh okay so i guess we're good now he's like oh yeah 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 we're fine it's fine just don't do it again all right cool yeah that's funny that's awesome man what a freaking great seriously it's a great story it's a great story i could write i'm gonna write a song and a profile and i'm gonna call it levi weaver (laughs) the ballad of levi weaver and uh Uh, you know well, yeah. don't tell me about it. If you do that, I would be really embarrassed with that attention at this point. Like I had stories written about me when I was doing music and I, I mostly just hated them. Like I love the attention from, from the crowd. I hated reading stories about myself because I always yeah. wanted to either correct them. I felt like they were too mean or too nice, but never really felt like they were in between. Um, right. so. Well, Levi, I appreciate you doing this, man. This has been freaking a delight for me. Of course. So, uh, yeah, yeah happy absolutely. to do it. Nice to, nice to get to know you a little bit and. Well, I say that we mostly talked about me. Maybe, maybe I'll have you on our podcast and we'll profile you sometime. Yeah. You're more interesting. I want to thank today's guest, Levi Weaver, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Levi on Twitter at The32Ephus and read his work in The Athletic. And also, just to clarify, he insists that he now loves living in Texas. He wanted me to make that point. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the breathtaking MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.